We are uh, starting a six-part series today on the book of Proverbs called The Wise Life. We could literally spend years in the book of Proverbs, but hopefully this series will uh, help you from a practical standpoint in lots of different ways, but also whet your appetite uh, to spend more time in the book of Proverbs. You know, if you uh, read a few verses each day out of the Psalms and a few verses out of Proverbs, you've gotten your fix for worship and wisdom uh, for that day. And uh, the Proverbs have been called the most practical book in the Bible. Uh, and I hope that you find these sermons uh, practical. Uh, today, we're looking at the question, do you know the signs of a wise life? What are the signs of a wise life? That's what we find here in chapter 1 in his opening verses. So I'll read these words for us. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. History tells us that the Wright brothers' first airplane flight lasted only 12 seconds. But that fraction of a minute changed the world forever. And in much the same way, there's a phrase found in these opening verses, the fear of the Lord, that can change your world forever if you seek to apply that discipline and that knowledge in your daily lives. Solomon tells us in these opening verses what he's going to say, what he's going to give us, who it's for, and he also gets right to the theme of the book in verse 7 when he says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Like many other biblical writers, he gets right to the heart of the matter from the get-go. I mean, think about John's gospel, for example, how he's talking about the good news of God in this person of Jesus Christ. And so he begins, in the beginning was what? The Word. In the beginning was Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Perhaps we could argue that John does this because he has such a good example from Solomon in this book of wisdom. Because Solomon begins with the most important thing, the fear of the Lord, and he hits on this theme all throughout this book, especially prominently so, again in chapter 9, when he tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it's all in there. 
It's in various Proverbs, this phrase, the fear of the Lord. He begins with it. We see it all through the book and at the end even. And I believe it's the next, the last verse, talking about the virtuous woman, the good wife who, who can find. It says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who what? Who fears the Lord is to be praised. This fear of the Lord, that's the most wise saying that we find in this book. But what does that really look like in your life and in mine? What are the signs of a wise life? Well, to answer that question, perhaps we need to start by defining what wisdom really is. This is what this book is all about. We can see its purpose in verse 2. He says, to know wisdom and instruction. And in Hebrew, this word wisdom is a word that's all about gaining skill. And this skill is in the art of living your life in such a way that all of those around you can see that you employ God's wisdom. That is to say, God's truth in the things that you say, in the decisions that you make. And then the word instruction involves the notion of discipline. We don't necessarily think of it in those terms, but in the Hebrew, to discipline or correct is what we do when we instruct. Now, are we born with this wisdom from God? Or even a love for correction? Well, Typically, we are not, would be my answer, which is why we need to have the attitude of humility, a humility that points us to our own need to learn. The first time this word wisdom is ever used in Scripture, we find it in Exodus 28, when Moses is consecrating the priesthood. You see, this is a a way to study the Bible. Sometimes when you wonder about the meaning of a word, it's the principle of the first mention. You go back to where you first see it in Scripture. And in Exodus 28, that's what we do. And that passage makes it sound like that God just bestows wisdom on whom he will. For we read there that God is speaking to Moses and says, you shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the Spirit of wisdom. Now, obviously, God blessed certain men in that time with wisdom and, and skill and craftsmanship, but a few chapters over in Exodus 35, we see the typical way in which God deals with us because there we're told that God put it into the hearts of these same special men who have all of this skill and this wisdom. He puts it in their hearts to teach. The fact that God put it in their hearts, the ability and the drive to teach others tells us that this learning is a way in which he helps us to grow and fulfill his will in our lives. In other words, we are not inherently wise. We need to learn and grow and receive wisdom. We need correction, whether we're young and naive or whether we already have much experience and wisdom. And particularly in Proverbs, God calls you and me to a a diligent and disciplined pursuit of knowledge 
and wisdom. And if we're going to put ourselves through this discipline of learning, because it takes effort and time, as that word implies, then we must admit that we don't know everything. In other words, a humble life is a prerequisite to a wise life. The first sign of a wise life is humility that we see in this text because we have to receive it. We have to understand that we need it, that we need this wisdom and instruction. We can see these two concepts, humility and wisdom, put together, for example, in Proverbs 11.2, which says, when pride comes, then, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. What does humility do? It helps us to see who we really are in relation to others and especially in relation to God. With humility, we see that we have so much more to learn, so much more for God to teach us in life. We have such a need for his work and the work of his Holy Spirit. In fact, in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament writers basically command us to be humble. You know, Paul says in Philippians 2, in humility, count others better than yourselves. Why are we supposed to live this way? Why are we supposed to have this attitude or this disposition? Because Paul tells us also in Philippians 2 that Jesus humbled himself. You know, if we're going to be more like Jesus, then we have to employ this same attitude in our own lives. And we can see this attitude bubble out. In the Apostle Paul's life, for example, when he told the Christians at Philippi that he wanted to know Jesus Christ, he wanted to know the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death, but then he states, not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I, I press on to make it my own. Now, a lot of scholars believe that Paul was writing Philippians, when he was in jail in Rome, which puts him at the end of his career for the most part. And you think about all the wonderful things that God had already done through the Apostle Paul, all of the churches he had planted, all of the people he had saved through uh, the seeds that Paul planted. And we see still in Paul, in his life, a heart that's diligent and disciplined in the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. I press on. That's an athletic metaphor in the text there. It's like a runner who's leaning over the finish line to hit the tape first. That's what Paul is talking about. One who lives a wise life always exhibits this kind of attitude. They're humble and ready to learn who God is and who God would have them be. Then we can see the next disposition in verse 3, where he says to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity. 
I don't know about you, but when I read terms like justice and equity, that involves interactions with other people. And so already we're talking about our dealings with other people. What is a wise way of life when we do that? Is it not to love our neighbors as ourselves? Isn't that what Jesus taught? In other words, to have love for one's neighbor so that all of our interactions involve righteousness, justice, and equity. And what this means is that this wisdom and instruction to which we're submitting ourselves is more than just an academic exercise. It's not just about cramming knowledge into our minds. It's more like character formation the forming the type of character that leads you and me to have concern for those around us in the world, the way in which God has concern for all of his people. We need to see that in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, education or gaining knowledge is never practiced separately from this character formation. It's all part and parcel of the same kind of thing. Now, a certain kindergarten teacher I know tells the parents of her children at the beginning of the school year the same sort of thing. She gives them this speech, and I'm not going to give you the whole speech, but she says, I'm not just teaching your children the alphabet and reading and those sorts of academic skills, but I'm also going to teach them life skills, how to get along with each other, how our decisions, our choices have consequences. Solomon would make the same kind of speech. That's what wisdom is about. That's what this book is about. Having the kind of character where we're not only humble, but because we're humble, we try and love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, Jesus speaks to this in terms of the commandment that is like unto the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment, he tells us, in Matthew 22, quoting Deuteronomy 6, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he says, a second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, what does it mean, practically speaking, to love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus talks a little bit about what it means to be a neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan, but the book of Proverbs and its emphasis on wise living has much to say to this. These individual Proverbs that we find dealing with all kinds of different uh, subjects or ideas or concepts within daily living. For example, do you want people speaking ill of you? Of course you don't. That's why we don't speak ill of others if we truly love them like ourselves. Rather, we employ the golden rule. We do unto others as we would have them do unto us. In the 11th chapter of Proverbs, we can read these two back to back. He who belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. 
He who goes about as a talebearer, that is to say, he who goes about as a gossip, reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing hidden. You see, there are always practical implications to living a wise life. It even has to do with what we say in our conversations with other people. And these practical implications take discipline, the same kind of discipline it takes to be a lifelong learner. We respond in humility and, and we give up some of what we want to happen in our own lives in these situations and circumstances. Sometimes we give up everything we want to happen because we're willing to love our neighbor as ourselves. This neighborly love, of course, is not just about how we use our tongues, but it's all aspects of living. And we see lots of these kinds of different proverbs. I'll give you another example, like how we deal with the money with which God has blessed us. In chapter 22, we can find these proverbs as examples of loving one's neighbor. He who has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and despoil of life those who despoil them. So we see in these opening verses this attitude of humility. We have to realize that we need to learn and need to grow and need to have wisdom. And we see this way of life that employs justice and equity for all, a love for one's neighbor as we love ourselves. But what we need to realize is that we can have these two at work in our lives because of the third and most important that he mentions here, which is the fear of the Lord. We can see it in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, we don't have the time to get into uh, what these foolish people are like other than to notice the obvious. They despise wisdom. They're not receiving it. They're not looking for it. They're not out there beating the bushes trying to find it. They're not uh, using disciplines in their lives so that they can learn it. They despise it, which means the fools are not those who cannot learn. It's those who will not learn, who have chosen not to learn. And just as we're reminded of the fear of the Lord throughout this book, we see its opposite pictured in this fool over and over again. But going back to this phrase, the fear of the Lord, there are more than ten Hebrew words that can be translated as fear. But the word that's used here has a range of meanings, a broad, diverse range of meanings. Anything from revere or be in awe of to fear to dread or, or terrify. But it also, at the same time, includes the idea of piety, religion, and worship. And this is why some scholars say that this phrase, the fear of the Lord, comes closer to describing 
worship and the practice of religion than anything else that we see in this book of Proverbs. As one study book put it, the fear of the Lord is the heart-stopping realization of the glory, majesty, and power of God and of his right to absolute sovereignty over all of his creation. Without this realization, none of us will ever fall on our faces in front of Almighty God. Worship happens when we all of a sudden realize that such a holy and righteous and powerful God has condescended to lower himself in order to have a relationship with you and me. That's when worship happens, when we understand the truth of the gospel. For those of you that converted, think back to when that conversion took place. And how all of a sudden you realize for the first time in your life you were a sinner and you deserved death and yet God had poured out his grace upon you in Jesus Christ. And what a realization that was. And you probably were sobbing because you were worshiping. And at the same time, there may have been a little bit of fear in there and all of reverence, maybe even terrified of this God who would do such a thing for you. You see, when we're in his presence, the realization of his utter holiness and our utter sinfulness causes us to fall on our faces or amazement seizes us so that we try to get out of his presence and we can see both of those reactions in believers in both testaments. In 1 Chronicles 21, we're told that David saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth and, and David and the elders fell on their faces. That's the story, you know, when David had sinned by having a census of all of Israel and God was going to punish him and he was able to choose his punishment and he chose three days of pestilence. And when he saw that angel right outside of Jerusalem, he and the elders fell on their faces. This is the most powerful man in the kingdom. He's falling on his face before an angel. Think what he would have done if it would have been God Almighty himself. Or think of Peter in the New Testament. We're told that they had fished all night and hadn't caught a thing, and then Jesus was teaching the people, and Jesus used Peter's boat as his rostrum area to teach the people. And when he finished teaching, he said, Peter, let's go out and go fishing. I don't think... Luke gives us all of the conversation that goes on there. Because I imagine Peter, knowing him, would have said, well, now, you know, we, we fished all night long. We didn't catch a thing. Jesus, what do you know about fishing? I've been fishing all my life. We're not going to catch anything in a day. But nevertheless, at your word, we'll let down the nets. And, and Jesus told them when. And there was such a, a great, enormous load of fish that both boats 
began to sink, that of Peter and that of his partners. And that's when Peter turns to Jesus and he falls at his, at his feet and he says, Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And Luke tells us that amazement had seized him. In these accounts from Scripture, we can see worship and fear all at the same time in their reactions and their great need of God's saving grace. But in these examples, we can also see something else. We can see these people learning something. The fear of the Lord is all about turning from our own rebellion to being teachable before God. That's why this fear of the Lord goes hand in hand with knowing God. You know, according to Deuteronomy 6, one way the Israelites were to fear God was to obey His command. You see, living in obedience by the fear of the Lord proved that they knew this God and understood their relationship with Him. That He had saved them from their captors, that He had delivered them. That He did this because He cared about them and heard their cries, but He did this also because of the promises that He was fulfilling to their forefathers. This kind of covenant history, as one scholar put it, is never far from Solomon's mind in this book of Proverbs. And hopefully as we read this same book of wisdom, covenant history is not far from our minds either. The kind of covenant of which God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah when he says, This is the covenant which I will make after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now it was Jesus who came into this world to make God known. It was Jesus who said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and, and my own know me. What do we know about Jesus? We know that he humbled himself. We know that he loved his neighbors as himself. And we know that the fear of the Lord permeated his life each and every day. These are the signs of a wise life that Solomon lines out for us in this text today. I'm sure there's some others, but these are enough for us to begin. And may God bless us to that end as we seek to live for him in the days to come. Let's pray together.